It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, further to our usual updates from the front line of the war, we ask a sobering question. Do the attacks around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant risk another Chernobyl? This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 12th of August, day 170. And today I'm joined by two guests new to the podcast. The first, Hamish de Breton Gordon, is a chemical weapons expert and formerly a British Army officer for 23 years. He was the commanding officer of the UK's Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear Regiment and NATO's Rapid Reaction CBRN Battalion. Our second guest is Mariam Name, a Ukrainian cultural researcher of Afghan origin. She'll be offering reflections on how Russian aggression gave birth to the Azov Battalion and other far-right elements in Ukraine and how the war is shaping Ukrainian attitudes to both their country and themselves. But before that, here are our headlines for today. Ukraine and Russia have accused each other of risking nuclear disaster by shelling Europe's largest nuclear power plant, occupied by Russian forces in a region expected to become one of the next big front lines of the war. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky told officials to stop talking to reporters about Kyiv's military tactics against Russia, saying late on Thursday that such remarks were, quote, frankly irresponsible. Ukrainian children returning to school after the summer holidays will be taught lessons on how to avoid mines and other dangerous objects left over from the war with Russia. And finally, Liverpool, Glasgow and Birmingham are among the cities shortlisted to host the 2023 Eurovision Song Contest in the UK, as Ukraine, winners of this year's competition, will not be able to host the event due to the war. The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, has just returned from Denmark, where he was joining the British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, who we heard in our episode yesterday. Before talking to our guests, I started by asking him about the latest news from his trip and about the conversations taking place among senior Western officials. Hi, Francis. Hi, everybody. So this was the, the donor aid conference in Copenhagen, 26 nations plus the EU present to uh, provide 
uh, money and pledges of support for Ukraine in terms of training and uh, and there was some demining. That's why I had the had the, the phrase in my head. Apologies for that. And so the, the the press conference yesterday afternoon, there were no details of of uh, individual items of equipment that's going to be sent out. However, they confirmed, as I said yesterday, that the, uh, we heard by lunchtime that there was a pot of cash. Uh, importantly, cash, not uh, not just sort of pledges of 450 million uh, euro. So the Brits put in 300 million, um, and the, the Danes put in 110, and then there were some other other bits bits and pieces. And that that is that's cash to actually go and buy stuff, um, either to start production lines or, or buy from production lines, restart production lines. Uh, it was was a suggestion of some lines in possibly Poland, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic to actually get more ammunition, uh, artillery ammunition produced, um, and also uh, uh, other equipment. And and the reason I make the distinction is because it's not a it's not a reimbursement fund. The EU also have a a reimbursement fund, so they will pay back any country that that gifts a load of equipment. So you give a load of tanks or armored vehicles, artillery systems, what have you. You can then effectively sort of put a put an, an expense, um, like like my expenses from Copenhagen. Actually, yeah, the mother of all expense bills in uh, to the EU, and hopefully they'll they'll pay it. So that that came out of the. Um, in the press conference, um, so we asked uh, uh, Mr. Reznikov what he what he thought. He was very he was very grateful. He, you know, I said he made when he made great great play of, of thanking all the individuals there for their assistance. Said he was satisfied with the outcome. Uh, and this is a quote: "He said there's no time for t- for fatigue in a, in a marathon. You need energy, and the energy here is money. So um, it was uh, there were they were pleased with the conference. Uh, there were more pledges of support for training in terms of. Uh, people to do the training and and locations i asked mr Reznikov if if he thought expanding the training and uh, and and training for a direct purpose i right for for this war whether that would mean that the training areas and the and the soldiers doing the training would would be could be targeted were, were any, at any greater risk of being targeted by Russia, and he said, he said no. Um, he said it would be madness for Russia to take the next stage into a third world war. That's uh, that's a quote from Mr. Reznikov. But you know, it, it is it is one thing to to keep our eye on as Ukraine has more battlefield success. I would imagine more. Uh, I mean, there will be a huge effort to look after these training areas, but um, I don't think there's any immediate danger or threat. It would be quite something for Russia to take these places on because of course they are nato countries most of them uh, and nato locations so un- unlikely but not one to discount entirely and then there were some more some more details on on the demining so they, they, as, as well as training and uh, money there were a big outcome from the conference yesterday was that uh, iceland is going to take the lead on on demining both on land and sea um so i asked the the icelandic uh, foreign minister now, apologies, I've been practising this all morning, so here we go. A Thor's Colbrun Rakefjord Gifeda tier. I, I can only apologise if I've absolutely mangled that. But I asked the, the Icelandic minister if she thought, or, or some more details about this, and um, and how that's going to happen. If, if Iceland put uh, personnel into Ukraine to do the demining, or the, a train-the-trainer package, but if they go into, into Ukraine, doesn't that run the risk of coming into direct conflict conflict with with Russia and I said you know we should display my gross ignorance I said does that not put the risk of Iceland 
uh, troops from Iceland being in, in uh, conflict with Russia. And she went, no, no, it's actually very, very simple. Um, we haven't got any troops. <laughs> so off I, off I rush, go and do a quick bit of research, which I possibly should have done beforehand. Apologies. Um, yeah, Iceland, the only member of NATO that doesn't have a standing army. So there's no, there are no troops. They've got... Um, They've got a coast guard um, with air defence assets and and uh, uh, naval artillery and what have you, but there's no actual no actual army for Iceland. They do, however, have a crisis response unit which comes under um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So, so the minister I was, I was chatting to, this is an unarmed peacekeeping force, about 200 people, has been involved in a lot of UN missions, Afghanistan, Kosovo, and so on and so forth. And it's likely that these demining instructors will come from this from this force to train. Ukrainians, I say, both land and sea. Initially, I was told afterwards, went back um, and asked through UK channels for a bit of clarification. And um, by which time, of course, I knew all all about you know, Iceland not having an army and et cetera, et cetera. But I went back through UK MOD channels and got a bit more detail that the, the initial work is going to be going to take place outside of Ukraine. So the instruction, um, whether or not Iceland will ever have any of these crisis response unit personnel in the country or on the water, uh, is yet to be seen. Un- unlikely, but not uh, uh, certainly not to, uh, definitely out, out of the question. Um, and she said, she said that the Iceland have been given the role uh, because they have experience and knowledge, and um, and was was very pleased to be able to do to do what they can. And this is, I remember yesterday I was saying that these donor conferences, it, it's not all about um, everybody just putting a load of load of weapons in a load of money because not everyone has weapons and money. And this is an example where Iceland, who has a very niche capability and is light in other areas, are able to lean in and do and do, and do what they can. So um, that'll be one to watch. That'll be an interesting one as that gets going. I'll try and find out where it's happening, and uh, that'd be quite quite good to go and go and visit that the demining activity. Um, but yeah, and so those are the, those are the main the main outcomes from the from the Copenhagen conference. The next one. Uh, so this is this is under the umbrella of the Ramstein process, uh, Ramstein Air Base in 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 Germany, the US Air Base in Germany the location of the first big US-sponsored donor conferences. So this is a similar vein, but this was um, this was kick-started by, by Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary. So this is almost kind of Ramstein light. They haven't really got a title for it, but it's you know, another military aid donor conference. The next one in this series, um, I, I, I think the difference basically is that this focuses on a bit, a bit of kit, but mainly money and training, whereas Ramstein is mainly mainly the kid. So this process, next one is uh, is late September. Uh, no idea where yet, um, but uh, yeah, but I'll be there. And that was uh, yeah, that's the update from yesterday. Thanks very much, Dom. Um, so I want to turn now to what's been a big story we've been following on this podcast now for several days. Plumes of smoke on Thursday rove above above the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, a low-slung grey complex on the banks of the river Nipo. Having occupied the plant since early March, we understand the Russian forces have begun shelling Ukrainian towns in the surrounding area from behind its nuclear shield. Now, we're very lucky to have on the podcast Hamish D. Breton Gordon, who, as I say, is a chemical weapons expert and was formerly uh, a British Army officer for 23 years, um, commanding officer of the UK's Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear Regiment and NATO's Rapid Reaction Battalion. Um, Hamish, just how dangerous is the situation in Daparija from your perspective? Um, good, good afternoon, Francis and Dom. Um, thanks for having me on. Uh, well, nuclear power stations um, are inherently safe. However, um, having fighting around them and the chance for accident 
and uh, everybody knows about Chernobyl and Fukushima and Three Mile Island, um, is not ideal. In fact, in fact, having Russian troops around there is, is crazy. It's bonkers. Although the power station uh, has been very well constructed, there are six uh, reactors there, all cocooned in a uh, sort of a concrete sophagus, which allegedly will take a, a strike from a crashed aeroplane. Um, they're not designed to withstand attacks from precision weapons and, say, thermobaric uh, missiles. So to weaponize them, as the Russians seems to do, to me is incredibly reckless. Um, and we've seen that conventionally the Russians have not had a huge amount of success against a lesser-equipped military. Um, my experience um, seeing them in Syria over the last 10 years is is they sometimes go to unconventional. So so weaponizing a power station like Zaporizhia would be very much in their lines. I think it's unlikely that a stray um, artillery shell would create um, any sort of uh, 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 chemical or, or any radiological dispersion. However, uh, I do understand there's quite a lot of spent fuel around the place um, and other contaminated areas which could create some sort of radiological contamination. So so to, to answer your question in a roundabout way, yeah, in, incredibly dangerous. Um, and it's something that we need to, we, the international community, NATO, et al., uh, need to sort out as, as the main priority at the moment, because any accident there could have a global effect as far as contamination is concerned. Thank you, Hamish. And in your professional opinion, is this the closest we've come in our lifetimes, at least, um, or certainly my lifetime, um, for a sort of another Chernobyl. Is this the greatest risk that we've had, certainly in Europe, perhaps the world, of, of that kind of incident, do you think? Absolutely. Um, what really concerns me, there's a chap called General Vasiliev, um, who is commanding the 500 troop garrison uh, at Zaporizhia. First of all, for a general to be commanding 500 troops, is extraordinary, you know, a, a British general would expect to command, you know, five or 10,000 troops. Now, this fellow is, is head of Russia's CBRN. Um, in effect, he's doing the same job that I used to do for the British military. But, you know, I was trained in countering chemical and biological, radiological, nuclear attack and preventing it happening, whereas I expect General Vasilyov is more in the uh, offensive nature. So the fact that he's there, the fact that he claims that he has has wired with explosives the, the, uh, the site. And if he has put explosives within the reactors, then that, that is a different story. That could really create, um, you know, a meltdown and a huge, um, a, a huge uh, fallout, uh, you know, across a wide, wide area, east and west. So, so that concerns that the, the other element, I think, that needs to be considered here is... Soviet doctrine, and the Russians seem to be following Soviet doctrine uh, in Ukraine, would allow commanders to use nuclear weapons uh, if, if that would stave off defeat. And um, one of the things about Zaporizhia, strategically, it's in a, in a key position, strategic position, you know, just north of the sort of Crimea, any, any uh, counteroffensive by the Ukrainians south is going to have to go via there and um you know if the ukrainians are successful as one hopes they will be then uh you know they they the russians might see that as a 
uh, as an excuse for them to to use Zaporizhia in effect as a sort of a nuclear weapon. So I think I think we're at a really dangerous stage at the moment. Um, no cards seem to be off the table. Putin has no concern about collateral damage or civilian casualties. Um, obviously, or not obviously, but it would appear his only thought is about winning and winning at all costs. And I think we, we need, we, we have, we, the international community and NATO, uh, have, were very slow to the Ukraine problem. Um, I think some of our standing back in Syria not reacting when Assad used a lot of chemical weapons, really emboldened uh, Putin. You know, he really didn't think that we were going to do anything um, about Ukraine. Now that we have, we need to keep up the pressure. And he needs to be absolutely clear uh, that, um, you know, using Zaporizhia as a nuclear device, if you like, or any use of tactical nuclear weapons, will get an equal and greater response from NATO. Because we must persuade him absolutely not to do this and quite frankly all the other ills and problems we're suffering around the world at the moment you know i don't want to sound trite but are pretty irrelevant if saparicha goes up and we get involved in some sort of nuclear conflict thank you hamish dom you've been listening to what hamish has just been saying what are your reactions and questions yeah, thanks. Thanks, Francis. Hi, Hamish. Great to chat again. Um, I'd, I'd like to focus for a moment on Zaporizhia and then sort of zoom out, if we may, to, to Russia's CBRN capabilities more broadly. But just sticking with Zaporizhia for a, for a moment, the big difference, we've seen Russia use uh, chemical, biological, radiological weapons before. Here in, in Britain, we've seen polonium-210 used against or murdered uh, Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian dissident, in um, twenty. Uh, going to get this wrong, 2016, I think, um, and the Novichok attack against against uh, Sergei Skripal in uh, May 2018. But but it, this would be entirely, there's no way of denying this. Anything that happens to Zaporizhia, even a partial destruction, if they try to do that, try to get a sort of limited radiation release, I mean, there's absolutely no way that this would be deniable. Um, so, so do you think there's more risk They've shown themselves to be very cavalier with this stuff in the past. But do you think there's more risk now? They they consider the risk calculus to be the same here in this military context? Dom, hi. Yeah, great, great to catch up. Uh, I think you raise a really valid point here that um, it is, you know, they have got away with all of this um, in the past and uh, we, we haven't done very much about it. Um, are they prepared to take that risk? They appear to take you know any risk seems to be acceptable at the moment and um, you, you'll know better than I having be, recently been there it, it strikes me that um, you know things are not going uh, as planned uh, the fact that this chap Vasiliev is there really is a concern to me and, and I think um, you know if if it meant that they don't lose uh, they could well um, use this as, as a sort of um, a pseudo nuclear weapon as such I think just, um, I know we're going to talk about the nuclear capability in a minute, but, you know, they're tactical nuclear weapons. You know, at least we are going to get some indication because we will see them moving. Whereas Zaporizhia, um, if it is wired up, as Vasiliev says, um, we, we might not get, get very much um, notice. And I think, you know, the, the, um, I don't often agree with Antonio Guterres, head of the UN, but uh, his call for a demilitarized zone around uh, Zaporizhia seems to me to be the least worst and the most likely way out of this. But it is going to mean that the UN, I expect, are going to have to 
put boots on the ground. But, you know, going back to the Geneva Convention and the rules of war, these places should be protected, as should schools and hospitals and, uh, and, um, uh, and churches and mosques, etc. But, but again, you know, we saw in Syria and we're seeing now in Ukraine, people like Putin just, just don't follow those rules. So we, we have got to be absolutely firm in our determination to make sure that Putin understands that something like this would be unacceptable and this time NATO would act. And where do you think this sits in terms of Russian doctrine, i.e. the use of tactical nuclear weapons? We know is in their doctrine. They talk about it a lot. They see it as a as a response to battlefield defeat. So they've actually sort of put down in black and white almost when they would when they would use it. It's up to then up then for us to interpret what would be a battlefield defeat. Um, but in terms of biological, chemical, radiological weapons, is there anything that we know from their doctrine about about how they would approach the use of them? Well, in, in theory, of course, they don't have any. Um, they they uh, signed the Chemical Weapons Convention and, and in 2017 declared to the world that they got rid of all their chemical weapons, whereas you know, claiming that the, Russia, that the Americans and others hadn't. Of course, the next year, as you mentioned earlier, they used the most deadly chemical agent ever produced, Novichok, um, in my hometown, in fact, Salisbury, where I'm talking to you from today. So we sort of know they have a chemical weapons program. The biological weapons program, again, they claim that they don't have any. Um, again, there are people who th- believe that might not be the case. So, I mean, they, they, they in theory, have no doctrine for the use of chemical and biological weapons. Um, they do, or the Soviets had doctrine for the use of nuclear weapons, um, but as part of the non-proliferation treaty and start and all the rest of it, um, the view was that, uh, you know, a, a, apart from mutually assured destruction, there would be no use of, of nuclear weapons. As far as the weaponization of um, Zaporizhia, I mean, that, that is a really difficult one and an interesting one. When I was the Peshmerga's chemical weapons advisor, the Peshmerga are the northern Iraqi Kurd military forces. Um, I was their advisor for two years in the fight against Islamic State between 2015 and 17. Islamic State blew up a massive uh, sulfur mine and factory, a place called Al-Mishrak, um, south of Mosul, which had a strategic effect because the, the downwind hazard, the contamination, uh, stopped the Iraqi advance in its tracks. Um, and that proved very effective. I've sort of mentioned Russia's unconventional tactics in Syria, um, and I think this would be seen as an unconventional or asymmetric tactic. Whether they have doctrine in it, I I don't know, but we've already seen them uh, blow up several chemical factories in Ukraine, uh, which have created a toxic hazard. And in my opinion, it's One of the things they they horrifically have learned from Syria is that if you attack civilians, they are more likely to give up than the military, as it were. And if the people lose their will to to resist, then defeat quickly follows. And, you know, it's horrific to say it, but that seems to be a tactic that the Russians have. If it's in their doctrine, then that is horrific. So... I don't think, a very long-winded answer to your question, Dom, I don't think the weaponization of something like Zaporizhia is necessarily in their doctrine, but it does appear to be in their tactics, techniques and procedures, uh, which is shocking. Yes, it absolutely is. Can you just talk us through 
either directly Zaporizhia or a nuclear power plant, a generic nuclear power plant? What what makes a nuclear power plant? Where are the vulnerable areas? How are they monitored? And and what do we know of this place? Because we've only got um, Vasiliev's word for it, I think, that it's rigged, rigged with explosives. So how does the world monitor these sites? And, and, and are they, is, is every part as vulnerable as, as anywhere else? Well, I, I'm not a nuclear scientist, but um, I've been involved, obviously, in, in protecting nuclear sites when I was um, commander of the CBRN regiment. Um, they All nuclear sites are monitored and inspected by the International Atomic Energy Agency, and that's a UN agency, and those are the head of it, um, uh, Mario Grossi, I think his name is, he is the one who said, we need to get in there and find out exactly what's happening. So so that's absolutely what, what should happen. And in normal terms, that is how these things are monitored. The, the safety regulations are made sure that they're up to speed. Now, there are, you know, the, there are areas of vulnerability or more vulnerability than others. Now, an awful lot of work has gone in to nuclear power stations before they first appeared in the sort of 50s to make them them safer. And uh, this particular site has six reactors, um, all of them encased in this sort of concrete esophagus. Uh, unlike um, Chernobyl, Chernobyl was one reactor which... Uh, which basically melted down and exploded and spread contamination. Now, that was a much older reactor and much more vulnerable. Uh, I think the areas of vulnerability tend to be, you know, there will be spent fuel, that is fuel that's gone past its useful date, but still highly radioactive. That will probably not be stored in such a secure site. And a huge amount of water is used to cool these things down, which can become contaminated. So, you know, the the... The actual reactors themselves, where the nuclear fuel is, is would be the area of most concern. And if Vasiliev has um, wired them with explosives, then you, that that would be a concern. Now, it might well be that the concrete over the top might prevent, you know, a widespread and contamination going over a wide area. I think I think instead of at the beginning, you know, the Chernobyl contamination. A heck of a lot of it reached the UK and a, a lot of that fell in North Wales and it was several years before farmers up there could sell their product again. Um, one of the one of the dreadful things with um, uh, nuclear isotopes is their half-life, if you like, you know, how long they're active, you know, can be a heck of a long time. You have something like polonium, which is a few days, and, uh, and one of the reasons that the the FSB, the Russian Secret Service, used polonium to kill Alexei um, Litvinenko was that they knew that um, the stuff would disappear fairly quickly. But you then come on to the sort of nuclear fuels, which have a half-life of, of years and years and years, so will hang around um, for a long time. So this is probably, you know, being a fairly modern nuclear power station is is safe and resilient to accident and you know, even an aircraft crashing into it. But I think never in anybody's wildest dreams did people think that they would be weaponized and to have troops amongst it firing missiles out is, is something that, you know, I'm sure nobody in all the contingency plans they did would have come up with it because it would, would have been absolutely ridiculous. But And that that is why we need to be so determined to sort this out because if somebody is prepared to do what the Russians are doing, what Vasilius are doing, quite frankly, I'm not sure what they're not prepared to do. 
Absolutely. And just finally, is there a ray of hope here? I think the message from the US and China were very, it was very similar. They were calling for, I think, restraint. And um, I'm not sure if they were calling for UN action, but they, they were they were very much on the same page when it came to this particular issue. Do you think this is one area that could be developed? And, and what do you think the UN should do? Well, I, I agree, Tom. If the Chinese are involved, that makes me feel a little bit happier because I think, you know, China and the US working together with NATO, you know, it is a pretty powerful organisation. Uh, and the Russians, you know, would be, you know, crazy not to, to, to look at that. So I think that that gives hope. Um, I, the, the Russian, I gather the local Russian mayor or the commander of the Onblast has said, you know, we will allow inspectors in in a few weeks' time. Um, I think we, we've got to enable that. We've absolutely got to enable that uh, and push that home. And uh, and Ukrainian military, you know, whatever action they've got to do, you know, hopefully they will show restraint um, because you know more provo- any provocation the Russians uh, will see um, might might set them to to press that um, that button. And if we can get people on the ground, then. Then, then hopefully. I think you know, what one is just, uh, I don't say hope is, is the wrong word to use, but I'm sure there are the checks and balances in the Kremlin. Um, you know, first of all, to make sure that Putin just doesn't go and press the red button. And secondly, that, you know, a, a rogue commander doesn't do, do try and have a strategic impact by, by weaponizing a nuclear site or another site um, on their own volition. So, Although this all sounds dreadful and, and horrific, um, as long as the world's leaders, um, US, China and UK, focus on this and sort it out, uh, then we should hopefully uh, uh, avoid you know, a, a global disaster. But, but the potential is there, um, although you know, I'm, I won't say it's unlikely, but the potential is there. Um, but we must sort it out above any other thing else that is vexing us at the moment. Well, thank you very much for your time, Hamish. Really, really interesting to hear your perspective. We've spoken now about the military aspects of this war. We've spoken about the nuclear today. Um, and I want to now just sort of return more to the human experience of, of what's been happening, um, not only this week, but also since the war began back in February. So I want to turn now to um, Mariam Name, who is a Ukrainian researcher of Afghan origin, who's here to offer some insights on not only Ukrainian culture, but also experiences and reactions to the, to, to the war, not only her own, but also more broadly amongst Ukrainian people. So, Mariam, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Um, could you just introduce yourselves to our listeners and, and talk perhaps a little bit about your experience of the war since it began? Um, hi, um, thank you a lot for having me. This is a very nice opportunity as well. Thank you. Um, so, my name is Mariam, um, as you already said. So, I guess most of the time I can call myself a cultural researcher. Uh, but of course, since war, I guess uh, the the easiest way to introduce myself is just call myself Ukrainian. Um, if we talk about war and how, how it's actually connected to my family, um, it's pretty interesting because uh, the World War was always, uh, has always been connected with my family and its history. Um, the world uh, the war of the USSR with Afghanistan 
uh, became the reason why my father and my brother left Afghanistan, like m- more than 30 years ago. Um, after death of uh, my brother's mom, we have different uh, mothers. Uh, so due to the war, my father went to Moscow to um, to do also his PhD. But the main reason, of course, was with political situation at that at that time. Um, and he man, uh, he met my mother there. She's Ukrainian, and this is how uh, all my family appears to be in Ukraine. Uh, so this is very interesting because um, it's interesting to talk with my brothers and hear what do they remember from that first war that they faced when they were kids and now. So 25 years after the first war, one of my brothers were was mobilized. Um, and again, he, he fought the Russian aggressive expansion um, in 2015 uh, in eastern part of Ukraine. And um, since the, the beginning of the full-scale invasion, um, the same brother, Masti, uh, again went to, to the front line. And in June, he was blown up um, by the mine. Uh, he lost an eye. Um, but right now, he's, his condition is, um, is stabilized. He's even making jokes about that. And um, this is very interesting that the irony is that my brother remember Russian soldiers as children, and now he, he, meet, him, um, he meet them again. So, uh, for the current moment, all my family is in Ukraine, and I'm not. Uh, I'm in the US currently. Thank you. Interesting to, to hear your experience and your of, of your brother. Obviously, we're glad that he's that he's okay and recovering. Um, what what's your sense talking to him about the general state of morale amongst Ukrainian soldiers? Oh, um, this is actually very uh, complicated questions not because it's not very nice to talk about this, it's because um, there is um, a lot of levels right now, a lot of levels of senses. So right now, while talking to you, of course, I know that I'm talking to people uh, from the Western part of the world, I mean, compared to Ukraine. And I need to to filter myself because there is some specific topic that I can discuss with you and I cannot. And I know that this is something very typical for all Ukrainians right now who are speaking in English or uh, try to explain what's happening in Ukraine. This is the same subject about uh, soldiers and military system. There is a lot of levels um, in this situation. Of course, on the on the surface, this is kind of understandable for everyone that uh, soldiers, uh, everyone just doing their job. And of course, everyone believed we will win. This is something that's inevitable for us. Uh, but of course, there's a lot of um, other problems like my brother told me yesterday that um, when you're going to war, you are typically they preparing you for two months, but nobody prepare you for peace. So this is interesting because we start to talk uh, about what 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 does um, he feel after uh, coming to to the civil life and actually how he's um, adopting or uh, try to coexist with the, with the new life. So uh, right now. You know, to be honest, I don't think uh, we can discuss how exactly our Ukrainian soldiers feel like. The only one important thing is that they're doing their job. They they know that they are um, they're fighting for the land. It's a very different perspective there than Russian soldiers. This is very important. So this is like a, a civil act act of your uh, responsibility as a as a person, I guess. Uh, but of course, uh, I'm very grateful to all of them. But in the same time, I just want this war to to be over as fast as possible. Of course, 
with uh, with Ukraine with Ukraine that will win. Thank you. Now, I was very struck by something that you've written about on Twitter. You describe yourself as a Russian-speaking person of colour who was born and raised in Ukraine. And you talk about how this puts you in a position to speak on the issue of nationalism and neo-Nazism in Ukraine. What are your insights on this on this very big question? Mm, you know, this was important. Um, so this was actually this um, this thread that I wrote on Twitter. This was the reason why I even uh, created my Twitter account. So I didn't want to, to do any any social media about that. But I realized that when when we have more and more discussion about Ukrainian far right, and every time uh, journalists are talking to Ukrainians, and you know most Ukrainians are of course Slavic people. Um, and we receive this information that there is no racism in Ukraine. It doesn't sound right um, for a lot of people, and people cannot trust uh, this kind of information. So I thought um, this will be the reason why I can talk about this, because I I physically, I know what is racism. I know I experience racism in different countries. So I thought uh, I can describe what is the issue with uh, with nationalism and Ukrainian and nationalism. Um, specifically. So um, to talk about Ukrainian nationalism, we first have to establish the context of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And this is something that um, we have lack of this information, not in the Western world or, I don't know, uh, in journalism, but it's also in Ukraine. So this is something that um, me as Ukrainian, we discuss this right now with other Ukrainians to understand this relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And this is not just a countries that share in the common border. Um, our relationship is is what empire and colony. So uh, typically, Russian empire erases the culture of their colonies, which is completely normalized, which was completely normalized, and uh, typically captured lands uh, were named Russia after they were ethnically uh, cleansed, and um, of course for Ukrainians. Um, nationalism um this is kind of a way to defend their culture this is something that eva thompson was writing about um this is um, a prominent scholar of, of post-colonial view on eastern european uh history um she was saying that um there is distinction between imperialistic nationalism uh reaching out of aggressive of aggressively uh, to subjugate and exploit potential colonies and defense of nat- nationalism uh, poised to preserve tradition and uh, identities. So, um, defensive nationalism is common to people um, whose identity is in existential danger. Typically, what what we have in Ukraine. So, this is something that actually can explain what happened uh, in Ukraine and explain um, Azov and other uh, far right discussions. So, um, so media was talking a lot about uh, re- regiment of Azov, but. The, the founding year of Azov is actually 2014. And this is the same year of um, Russia attack on Ukraine, 2014. So the current rise of Ukrainian nationalist and far-right movement is, is to a large extent caused by Russian expansion of aggression. So this is, was very important to highlight because um, I guess this is something that wasn't very understandable from perspective of Europe. Um, and I can see why, because in the same time in Europe, there was a, a, a big wave of um, right um, political parties that became more and more popular. And I can see why it looked like like another danger. But this is a very different perspective, because, again, we all um, 
all generalization could be very um, dangerous right now. So if we even talk about Ukrainian nationalism and a Ukrainian problem with far right, uh, I, I cannot say it's a problem, but anyways, um, we need to always uh, look to the context. It's not the same. Um, it's not the same political party as in France. It's not the same political party as as in Hungary. It's a completely different cultural context. And to understand um, whole reason and the whole problem um, of Russian-Ukrainian war, we need to look into the history. And this is uh, what I think um, we we lack of right now. We we need to deep to look deeper into Ukrainian relationship with Russia because this is something that I also noticed that culturally. Uh, people were more focused on Russia and history of Russia and everything that was connected to to that country, but not on Ukraine because it wasn't so popular a topic to discuss. And right now we need to um, to shift um, um, this situation and look more into the Ukrainian history. Thank you. It's so interesting hearing that perspective that this sort of rise of of of, of far right nationalism within Ukraine is actually in, in many ways fired by the Russian aggression that's been happening in the country since 2014. But I, I'm very struck as well by this. You know, we talk a lot about the, the sort of nationalism and, 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 and racist elements within Ukraine. And indeed, that's something that, of course, Russian propaganda has picked up on. But something we hear less about, Mariam, is is how Ukraine has improved in recent years in these areas. It's a very different country than it was only a handful of years ago. I just wondered if you could, could talk about that and perhaps what Ukrainians feel the future of Ukraine looks like. Yeah, so uh, this is another topic, and you're, you're completely right. Um, I can compare situation with racism, for example, in Ukraine, but I can just discuss LGBT rights. So this is something that I'm very proud of. And... Of course, I was, um, I'm proud right now that I'm Ukrainian, but even before, it was one of the reasons why I was proud to be Ukrainian. Because um, I could see how my country and my society, we are all together growing into something that uh, I can see as a, as, a, as a better representation of my state. So I can't even describe how fast and how rapidly um, Ukrainian society start to work on the um, homophobic problems. Um, how LGBT rights, we, we start to have a parade, which is completely like in, I couldn't even imagine that uh, more than 10 years ago. Um, and I remember this feeling um, in Ukraine, in Kyiv, when you start to understand that this is became new norm, this is normalized. And I, I was very happy for about that. And of course, um, this is something, this is a huge shift for Ukrainian societies, um, which was pretty conservative, to be honest. And I guess if you look at whole, um, at a lot of countries in Eastern Europe, this is a kind of typical uh, thing to be uh, um, very conservative towards this topic. So I guess Ukrainian society did, did a huge job um, in, in this area and um, continue to evolve. So right now we have a lot of LGBT people in, in, in the army. And we are very proud of it. So we are we're talking about this. We are forcing this topic all the time. Uh, this is the same, uh, but this is more personal view, of course. So of course, I res- I I face racism in Ukraine, uh, but not only in Ukraine, uh, all over the world. And I guess this is something that we should admit that racism exists everywhere. It very depends on w- which what extent. So um, in Ukraine, racism uh, it's less structural, like compared to Euro- European one. For example, but again, uh, the worst thing that I ever experienced in Ukraine was 
something around maybe 15 or 13 years ago. Uh, for the last 10 years or like even more, I, I didn't feel I didn't have any problems with um, with the racism in Ukraine. Even more, I did the um, uh, experiment, social experiment. I wrote an article about that. So I was uh, wearing a hijab uh, for 10 days in Kiev just to see reaction of the people because it was the, the time when the discussion kind of uh, appeared um, to be in Europe. You know, do, do people, can, can people wear hijab or burqa or not? So I was very curious because we haven't even had this kind of conversation in Ukraine. In Ukraine, we don't have a lot of immigrants. People are like, it's very, um, we have kind of the same ethnicity all the time. So I didn't even know how will actually Ukrainian react to this. And it was very funny because uh, the reaction of society just shocked me because everyone was super polite to me. I didn't receive any aggressive um, behavior. And for me, this was uh, another sign that I don't even know how actually Ukrainian society changed toward these years. So, yes, this is something that, this is another thing. We had this idea, and we talk about these ideas in 2013 when Maidan started, that we went on Maidan for the uh, European values. But to be honest, if we deep, uh, we go deeper to this conversation, we didn't even know what is European values. And right now, we start to understand that this is, maybe it wasn't right right way to call it it actually was our future ukrainian values or the, or what we will see um as a value at some point so it's it's very nice to see that uh ukraine evolved so fast and i'm very proud to be honest fascinating thank you mariam um dom you've been listening to what uh, mariam has been saying um, what are your have you got any questions for her i do yes hi mariam thanks so much for um for taking part here i'd just be really interested in in, in how you've been received in in America, what what view uh, you have of how the how the the war is viewed there, and uh, and the, the the kind of questions that that are asked of you? What's the, what's the first thing that people ask when if they meet you for the first time and discover you're you're Ukrainian and uh, from over there in that war? Be really interested in your perspective from that. Um. This is interesting, but, you know, right now, everything that I'm saying, this is just uh, my subjective view, so I cannot say that this is everywhere. Um, uh, I can say for, to be honest, compared to Europe, because before that I was in Europe, uh, this reaction um, made me feel much better, because they know what is Ukraine, I mean, and they are openly discuss, discuss this. So this is true. First thing that they, uh, when they found out that I'm Ukrainian, to be honest, first thing they are typically shocked because I don't look like a Ukrainian person. So I need to explain that I'm not Ukrainian. I'm, I'm not only Ukrainian, I'm Ukrainian and Afghan origin. Um, and after that, they try to uh, show me the, their empathy um, all the time. They're trying to explain that they are very sorry and they ask more about my, my family. Typically in Europe, it's not happening. Typically, is people in Europe don't want to talk about this thing. Maybe it's because war is much closer than to U.S., so it's more like a threat. It's not maybe people in Europe uh, want to avoid this topic, and this is what I felt more and more. This is another reason why I feel a, a bit uh, lonely uh, to be, uh, as a lot of Ukrainians, to be in Europe because you kind of are uh, talking too much about war. Uh, but to be honest, I guess the, the another reason why in U.S. it's much easier to support Ukraine, as I told you, is because it's far away. Like, I mean, the war is, the front zone is, is much far than in Europe. So uh, it's much easier to discuss something that doesn't have a specific and very mm, concrete threat towards you. That's fascinating. And, and if I just may, may ask 
just just one more. I mean, you you, you mentioned a lot about racism. Uh, you've, you've told us today. I just wonder how you felt about the situation from Afghanistan, and and if you have any contacts there, and and quite what you feel about. I can't I can't speak for other countries, but I think here in the UK, we uh, we need to have a discussion about why we have been very open to Ukrainian citizens fleeing the war and less so, I think, uh, for Afghan nationals uh, either fleeing the war then or fleeing the Taliban now. And I just wondered if you if you felt there was a an unconscious racism running through our society still, or, 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 or a, I think it's still there, but a, you know, a bigger, a much bigger unconscious racism that we we don't acknowledge, and whether or not we are we are vulnerable to this this charge that we are we are um, more open to Ukrainians because they you know quote look like us and and Afghan citizens might not. I mean, am I being am I being unfair there, or, they, or do you think that have you detected that in Western society? This is a very complicated question to answer because. Um Right now, I need to filter everything what I'm saying and be very, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, very accurate. So, first thing, um, to be honest, I guess yes. But second, and this is also important, Afghanistan is much more far away compared to Ukraine, and this is, I guess, also make a, a huge difference in at, at this point. So, we cannot describe, we cannot talk about. Okay, would we have the same situation if? Afghan people or like people who look less like you know uh, Caucasian people um, live closer to UK or Europe. It's very hard to discuss, but I guess of course yes, um, it's 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 connected problems. But in the same time, um, you know, a lot of Ukrainians right now talk about this thing. A lot of Ukrainians talk about the problems in other countries, and I guess this is um, our right um, as Ukrainians to help and. Our president even were talking about this. This is another reason why I'm very proud, <laughs> because he was discussing these kind of problems with other countries uh, while talking about problems in Ukraine, which is, um, I guess, the perfect way to describe that we we have systematic problem in the world. It's not it's not just Russia. There is a lot of problems in the world. Um, so to be honest, I guess yes, this is connected. But in the same time, why I need to be uh, very specific right now? Because it doesn't mean that we like that people world shouldn't help Ukraine. Of course, there is a problem. And to be honest, uh, the culturally, what will, what was happened to Afghani culture or Afghani people? This is just horrible. And to be honest, not only Afghani people. This is you, we, we can see a lot of atrocities uh, in in the world in the world right now. Um, but it's also, you know, as I told you about, we need to go deeper into the cultural context um, of Ukraine, Russia. This is the same um, when we talk about Afghanistan or or any or Palestine. We need to go deeper to the into the topic to discuss it because we cannot make a generalization. It's not the same as the Ukraine and Russia problem with Afghanistan. It's it's completely different context. But we also need to understand that what happened in other. Um, places in the world, it's also our responsibilities. Because there was another perception that I felt in Europe that somehow we felt like um, countries are very, are separated from each other. We didn't have any connections. And what's happening in your country is uh, not connected to what happened in my country, which is, I think, completely unfair because we live in one in one system. We coexist together as a person, as a people, as a society, and as a countries. 
So, of course, uh, economically, what happened to my country is actually have a lot of impact onto another country. And we need to distinguish that, that it's not we cannot say that this is not our responsibility, what's happened in a different in a different part of the world. And this is another topic that I uh, try to cover as well, like that um, some countries in Europe are responsible of what we see right now in the war in Ukraine. Because I remember how in 2017, I guess, we were in Kiev, we were on the, on the protest next to the France embassy uh, because we find out that France are selling weapons to Russia in the time when we already had a war in Donbass, which was completely absurd for me because you know where this weapon will go to. And at the same time, you were saying that... Um, the war in Ukraine, you say it's bad, but in the same time, you're selling weapons. So I guess this is another problem. And I, I guess right now we can see that world needs our consolidation as never before. I mean, of course, as, as some time before as well. But right now, this is for sure a big problem. And um, yeah, I guess the problem with other countries is a, is a matter of our consolidation as well. Thank you, Mariam. It's really interesting hearing your nuanced thoughts on on this question. Um, Before we wrap up with our final thoughts, I just had one other question for you. I was very struck by something you tweeted, which I'll I'll quote in full. I just wanted to, to ask for your reflections on it. So you said, we Ukrainians are very lonely because we know that no one understands us. You're a party pooper who always talks about war. Yet at the same time, I've never spoken so many tender words to my loved ones and friends. I've never felt so much support. I had a feeling that the whole world has got my back. This seems like a really common theme among Ukrainians that we've spoken to. Would it be too far to say that the war has given your life a new sense of meaning? Um, I guess not the meaning, but the purpose. Yes, this is for sure. And... um, I know it will it will be very weird to hear, but um, there is some positive things in war. Um, I mean, it made everything much clearer. Like you start to understand what is actually valuable, what is not. Um, I guess, and sorry, sorry for this pause. It's a little bit um, complicated for me to describe. I will always remember how I wrote to my best friend who was in Kiev at this point. And just just try to 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 imagine yourself in my shoes. Um, we were just chatting about something, and I asked him what he's doing, and he said that he's doing molds of cocktails because in case it was it was first days of Russian invasion. Uh, because in case Russian will be in the city, in the center of Kiev, he want to fight back at least with something. And um, uh, this horrible feeling that this is your reality, like it's not some movies. This is your reality. Right now, your friend is doing lots of cocktails because he might be dead by tomorrow. We don't know that. And of course, to be honest, this is something that we are doing all the time with my friends. We're just saying uh, how we love each other as an act of saying goodbye in case we will never talk to each other again. Um, To do it more than once, and we're doing that more than once, this is just so painful. And uh, right now... This is another phase that we are facing right now. We are we know that um, more men will, will needed to go to war, and of course, I know that some of my friends will be there as well. Um, and I don't know right now actually how to how to live with this with this feeling right now because it's it's very painful. This is another reason why we as Ukrainians feel more united because 
we have this collective trauma. Um, this is completely, this is something that changed your, I guess, there is a big difference. There is huge gap of these universes of understanding the world. When you saw how people got killed in your country and, and not, this is completely different realities. And of course, um, it's much harder when you try to describe this to person from another country, when you try to use empathy or you try to, to, to explain it in another way with words, it's not the same because even to go deeper into this grief of another person, it's, complete, it's very painful. So I can see why some people in Europe want to hide from this topic. It's completely understandable because to be honest, we did the same with other countries. I did the same with another country. But this is the thing. But from Ukrainians, I don't need to explain. They already knows what do I feel and I know what do they feel. This is a, um, so I don't wait for them some act of empathy to understand my feelings better. So um, for sure, I, I right now have a much, much clearer purpose. I know what I as a person should do um, with, with my future life. And of course, for me, it became very clear what is actually important. And you know, you hear about this thing in the, in the books all the time that people, communication with people and connections are the most important thing that in, in the world or something that unites us the most. But I can say that from this perspective, from another reality right now, um, connections, friendship and love that you have in the relationship, it's not only important or the most important thing you have in your life. It's actually the most beautiful thing you have in your life. Because the feeling, this amount of love and care that I receive, it just it's just beautiful itself. And this is some this is something that war showed me. I, I didn't know about that. I thought it's just important, but not as beautiful as it is. Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. This week, we've had emails from Guatemala, Chile, Okinawa, Japan, Melbourne, Australia, California in the United States, and the Bavarian Alps in Germany. I'm quite jealous of that last one. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.